Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, author Steve Thornton talks about his new book, Wicked Hartford. He's got a surprising take on a very universal story. Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored Magazine, the state's history magazine. In this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, we're going to talk to Steve Thornton, the creator of the Shoe Leather History Project, which documents and explores stories from Hartford's grassroots. He is an activist and retired union organizer and the author of the volumes A Shoe Leather History of the Wobblies, Stories of the Industrial Workers of the World in Connecticut, and the book we're going to talk about today, Wicked Hartford. In the foreword to Wicked Hartford, Trinity professor Christina Heatherton writes, Uncovering stories from the picket lines, prison files, and dusty state archives, Thornton lays bare the sordid history of the seemingly state insurance capital. Now from the title, I might think that the book is about sordid murders, sex scandals, and bootleggers, but you've gone to a different direction. Tell me about the stories you've chosen to tell. Thanks. Uh, Mary, the um, it's easy for someone to think that the title Wicked Hartford means that I think that the city of Hartford is wicked and having lived in Hartford for 40 years, it couldn't be farther from the truth. It's a wonderful city with wonderful people, neighborhoods, communities, and uh, it's going through some popularity again with the, the modern day yuppies. Um, but. It's just, it's the people who live here that have always made it special to me. And I was specifically not looking to try to come up with the uh, people who poisoned their tenants and buried them in the basement. You know, that doesn't interest me at all. But that's sort of the format of the book uh, and the publisher who puts out this whole series of uh, wicked um, geographical locations. I wanted to talk about the unsung heroines and the overrated heels. I I wanted to talk about people who were enslaved and people who were entitled. I wanted to make that contrast because history is usually written for and by uh, the great white men of, of, uh, of our past. And First of all, that gives them way too much credit. It also distorts their stories, and it leaves out the 99% of the people who don't fit into that category. So I decided that I wanted to use the kind of research that I had been uh, writing about for a long time and expand on it. There's there's a lot of brand new material. Um, And I, I couldn't resist... Um, talking about Sam Colt or Morgan Buckley, or for that matter, uh, Hearst and Pulitzer and uh, Jay Gould, the big robber baron. Uh, 
and the way they had an impact on people in Hartford. Um, so my story is both about those big guys, but also about the uh, the very modest folks with no power, but uh, really rose to the occasion uh, uh, for their own dignity and made sure that they made a real mark on history. And that's what I try to uh, underline and emphasize in my, in my book. You just mentioned Sam Colt. He's famous, uh, in fact, world famous, as an inventor, industrialist, businessman, and founder of Colt's Patent Firearms Manufacturing Company. Hartford even has a brand new national park celebrating him. But you paint him as a scoundrel. Can you tell me why? Sure. Uh, let me start with a, um, an editorial from the New York Times uh, of the day, 1861. Uh, the New York Times is writing in this piece to the people of Connecticut. And it says, uh, do you really know who you've got here in the city, this Sam Colt guy? Because we're just on the brink of war and he's selling guns to the South. Uh, what's up with that? I mean, this is the Times uh, really raising the, uh, the, uh, the red flag. And that's the truth. Uh, Sam Colt helped build the Southern war machine, the Confederate war machine, for a decade up until they fired on Fort Sumter and started the Civil War uh, with his guns. Now, you can't talk about Colt without talking about the fact that he armed America. Uh, there, were, of course, were other companies too, but here we're talking about the only person who has a historic site uh, named after him. And it's really quite amazing that we're willing to overlook that. And I'm not willing to overlook it. I mean, I think uh, sometimes I feel like uh, the fly in the soup. I feel like the person who uh, who is chided, you know, you don't say this in uh, pleasant company, in mixed company. You shouldn't be so rude. But the truth is that this history is useless unless it tells the other side. And Sam Colt uh, has, you said, used the word scoundrel. I definitely use that word. I'd also call him a traitor. I mean, he had no allegiance to the United States of America. He only had allegiance to himself and to profit. And we know this for sure because of his arms sales. The final one, which took place after the Civil War began, not 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 uh, legislatively, but it began after Fort Sumter, and and three days after that, he was still sending his um, guns down to uh, southern states. So uh, I am hard on him, and um, I know that uh, doesn't sit well with a lot of folks who would like to have a good place in Hartford to uh, for for tourists and suburbanites to go to, and I don't blame them, but. I'm not sure Colt is the right figure. What about his personal life and the treatment of his employees? In a way, he wasn't all that different from other big industrialists, but he certainly was one of the first to think that his workforce was basically his property. Uh, people said, oh, look, Colt has housing for his workers. But the idea of the company town is 
quite old, and a company town is designed to keep your your working population, your workforce in line. When you buy food from the company store and you pay rent to the company owner, uh, that puts you very much dependent on your job for all your basic needs and your family's basic needs. Colt also wanted workers to behave politically the way he did. Now, he was a Democrat, and at that time, being a Democrat usually meant you were pro-slavery. It also usually meant you were anti-African American, uh, free or enslaved. And Colt didn't like uh, people who were Republicans, workers who were Republicans, who were usually anti-slavery. So he would weed them out, sometimes by laying them off. I'm using air quotes here. He laid them off just before an election. And at least on one occasion, uh, a number of these workers got together and printed up these broadsides that with great detail explained what Colt had just done and how these weren't really layoffs. They were punitive dismissals. Uh, That particular broadside is, you can still find in the uh, Connecticut Historical Society archives. And it's a very, very well-written piece uh, that explains how Colt used his foreman to watch people as they voted, how they used what they called Seymour books. A Seymour book was basically your pledge of loyalty to vote the way Colt wanted you to. And if your name wasn't in the book, your job was at risk. And he he also um, disparaged anybody who didn't vote the way he did. He called them black abolitionists or black Republicans. And he used the term in a pejorative way because he didn't mean as in African-American, he meant as in evil, uh, although it it certainly has a double meaning. Uh, So this is the kind of workforce he insisted on, and uh, we don't know much about what they act, they thought and felt, except in these very few examples, uh, like the broadside where the workers spoke up and said, you know, we're not rich, we're not powerful. That's, in fact, the way they started their, their essay on this uh, large piece of paper that they posted around town. We're not rich, we're not powerful. We're just regular working dudes, and we want to let you know how Sam Colt is behaving. This was right up until the Civil War. Um, and he, uh, he helped place a number of politicians in power uh, because of his uh, hold over hundreds and hundreds of, of potential voters, mainly men who worked at his uh, plant. I know there's a scandal in his personal life. What was that about? <laughs> there, there are a lot of scandals in his personal life. Uh, and, and, you know, people might say, well, what does that have to do with Colt the, Colt the businessman? Well, I happen to think that uh, how you act in your private life uh, has an impact on your business life. Certainly, we've been hearing that a lot about that with the sexual harassment and sexual assault scandals in all areas of uh, American culture uh, these days. And 
one of the, I think, most shameful was Colt's relationship to a young Scottish woman, Carolyn Henshaw. She was maybe a teenager when he met her on a trip, on his trip to Europe. And it's, he married her. He married her in secret. Later, Henshaw had a child, and it's quite likely that that child was Sam Colts. It was named Sam, or Sammy, and uh, Sam Colt would write about this young boy and call him my quote-unquote nephew, Sammy. Sam Colt always used those quotation marks to identify his so-called nephew. Carolyn Henshaw as it turned out, uh, was probably still married to Sam Colt when he married uh, Elizabeth Jarvis. So that would make him a bigamist. Now, he may not have been, he might have gotten a divorce, but um, I'm not sure anybody's ever found any paperwork. All we know is a marriage certificate did surface. So he was married to Henshaw. And his brother, John, uh, married Carolyn Henshaw on the morning of his execution for murder in New York. Uh, and that's a whole other story. But that's a big part of who Sam Colt was as well. Yeah, I think it's fair game to take a public figure and say, well, this is also part of his life. How do we interpret that? Um, that's just one of the scandals. A chapter that tugged at my heart is the one on child labor in Hartford, the story of the Newsies, Book Blacks, and Telegraph Boys. I found one photo by the photographer Lewis Hine that shows a barefoot six-year-old boy selling newspapers on the streets of downtown Hartford. Can you tell me who Lewis Hine was and why we have these remarkable photos of Hartford? Sure. I think this is a real treasure. In fact, the fact that uh, there isn't a permanent memorial to Lewis Hine uh, and his work is a shame. Uh, Hine was a photographer employed by the National Child Labor Committee, which was a social service, social justice organization that believed that kids shouldn't have to work, that they should be able to go to school, that their health should be protected. And so they had a number of different campaigns to try to end child labor. They hired Lewis Hine, and he went around the country taking photographs, sometimes often surreptitiously, of children in mines and factories and fields. And you really see the conditions that they lived in at the time. He came to Connecticut. He took a number of photos in Hartford, and he really, uh, I mean, he really captured, for lack of a better term, the humanity of these kids. I mean, they are really beautiful kids who have this amazing and sort of naive hope about the world, even though they were treated really rather shabbily uh, in their time. So Lewis Hines' work, which is available online, and it's, um, they're you know, there are no copyrights around it because he, he gave all the photographs to the committee 
and the committee said, well, this is, you know, this belongs to all, all, all of history and all of the future. And uh, some of them are in my, my book. You know, what were the, the Newsies were both boys and girls. What was their life like? Well, think about if you delivered newspapers or your brother or your son or daughter delivered newspapers when you were young. That's sweet. You used to get uh, a couple of bucks uh, giving the evening or the morning newspaper uh, around to your neighborhood. And that's sort of the sense we have of what that job was. But for kids at the beginning and the middle of the 20th century, first, say, two or three decades of the 20th century, selling those newspapers meant the difference between getting that extra loaf of bread for your family or getting shoes for your younger siblings. Uh, people, kids, sold newspapers because it was part of the family income. And they would sell newspapers from nor morning to night, six days, seven days a week, uh, because of the poverty in this city. You know, Mark Twain, I just saw somebody quote Mark Twain and talking about what a wonderful, beautiful city Hartford is, but they always leave out the next sentence, which says, um, uh, where are the poor in Hartford? I confess I do not know. They're probably hidden in some dark corner of the city where I haven't traveled yet. And he was absolutely right. These kids lived in tenements. They were susceptible to more diseases than the normal uh, family. And they had to uh, spend all their free time, all their waking time, helping to feed their their families. There's a there's a uh, movie about Newsies. There's a play about Newsies. But what was the real story about how that strike that's in the famous movie and play really played out here in Connecticut? Well, there were a number of uh, Newsie strikes in New York City and. Uh, they stretched out across uh, the East Coast. The one that I follow in my book took place in 1909. Uh, at the time, Joseph Pulitzer, who was a uh, up-and-coming newspaper uh, mogul, and William Randolph Hearst were in competition. Uh, they would do almost anything to sell more newspapers than the other guy. And there had been this long-standing agreement that if a kid couldn't sell all his newspapers, he or she could go back to the local dealer and the local dealer would give the newsie some credit. And then the local dealer would get some credit from Hearst or Pulitzer, whether... It was one of those publishers that they got their newspapers from. When Hearst and Pulitzer stopped that practice together at the same time, that squeezed the local dealer and he squeezed the newsies. And the newsies, of course, lived on pennies. So that was too much for them to bear. They organized a union, 
an honest-to-goodness union. They were helped by some of the settlement workers in Hartford, some of the social workers behind the scenes, and they they developed a uh, a union of all uh, newsboys and girls in 1909, went on strike, paraded through the city, and got plenty of support, plenty of support from uh, people who bought newspapers in Hartford. Now, they sold not only the local newspapers, and there were three or four or five of them at the time, but they sold the, the two New York newspapers uh, that came from Pul- Pulitzer and Hearst. They would pick those newspapers up at the train depot every afternoon and sell them from noon on. But they stopped that. They stopped that practice, and they asked everybody to stop buying those newspapers and only buy local, and a lot of people did. But going up against these two incredibly rich men meant that the the balance was off. The They were sort of doomed from the start because they didn't have the power of Hearst. They didn't have the power of Pulitzer. And ultimately, they lost their, their strike. But it was certainly not the only time that they organized to take care of themselves and their families. And that particular story to me is very moving because um, as Mother Jones, the labor organizer for the coal miners, used to say, you never lose a strike. You arm yourselves and you scare the boss, Uh, which means to me um, there's always a next time. There are no permanent losses. And I think this was a very important lesson for the newsboys and girls. Another child labor type of job that was on the street in Hartford, and I read that it went from 100 kids on the street to over 250 during the Depression, was the bootblack or shoeshine boy. How did the city try to regulate that? Well, let me start out by saying that if you are at the main branch of the Hartford Public Library and you're standing on the sidewalk and you're looking away from the library to the other side of the street and you look at the edge of the stone bridge, which is at the other side of the street and it's where the the underground part of the highway comes in, you will see painted on the stone near the sidewalk, BB, and that was a stencil. And those stencils were meant that the bootblack could set up shop there. And the reason, and that's still there, it's still there. Uh, I found two of them so far. They may be the only two left. The reason that was finally set up is because the bootblacks, there'd be so many of them, they'd have to get licenses. And the police commissioner could take the license away for any reason. But they would congregate around downtown businesses. The the building owners didn't like it, although customers liked it because they played this cruel game. They would have uh, they'd throw pennies into the crowd of kids, and the kids would all scramble and fight over the pennies. And they thought that was some good amusement. But the kids would uh, pitch pennies, and they would. Um, uh, the building owner said they would use profanity and they'd congregate. And even though they were working and they were hardworking kids, because, again, they had to feed their families quite frequently what they brought in 
in terms of uh, pay was the difference between eating and not eating any particular week. So the bootblacks, the shoeshine boys, would um, go wherever they thought they could get the best business. Now, what that meant was the building owners, if they didn't like that, they'd, they'd, they'd scare them away. Or worse, they'd have the policemen scare them away. And cops often stole paper, not always, but some cops stole newspapers from the kids and kicked their newspapers into the, into the gutter. Um, and that was a, an effective way to move the, the kids along. But the bootblacks uh, found that they weren't able to go to the prime uh, parts of the of downtown where most of the businessmen were and where most of the, sh the shoe shining took place. So they formed a union as well. And again, they were helped by social service people. And in this case, it was mostly a legislative struggle where they would go to the city council, meaning the, the young bootblacks, and they'd speak up on behalf of themselves and their young co-workers. And they'd talk about their lives. And this is something that nobody else did at the time. They talked about how they would shine shoes, but their younger brothers and sisters didn't have any shoes. And so that was a uh, that was powerful testimony. And as a result, the city regulated where bootblacks through a compromise, um, regulated where the group blacks could uh, set up shop. And it did, uh, I think it solved the problem ultimately. They weren't uh, in always the choice places, but they did ply their trade anyway. You know, you mentioned that those bootblack uh, shoeshine stops were really used all the way through the 1950s. How could you have children still working as uh, shoeshine boys as late as the 50s? Because the poverty uh, was maintained through the 50s. Uh, and because the, the concept of shining shoes was a lot more popular than, uh, than it is now, um, I've, I've written about this before, and I've, um, I'll give you an example. Lou Brown, who was a longtime broadcaster, newsman, um, radio broadcaster, television broadcaster, he wrote to me and he said, you know, I used to be a boot black when I was a young kid and Lou's getting on an age now, but he has these gr a great memory for this kind of work. And he can name who, where he got the license from and who he got the license from and the parts of the job that he really enjoyed. And so it, it's a tradition that is mostly gone by the boards, as everybody knows, but uh, it was a necessary uh, tradition while everybody was wearing shoes that were patent leather and needed to be uh, shined. Uh, now, you know, I don't wear anything but sneakers. And <laughs> so I, I always go by a shoe shine uh, guy a little uh, chagrined because I can't, uh, I, I can't uh, take advantage of their services. In this age of uh, having everybody has a, a cell phone, and I know now anybody under 25 just wants to text each other. They don't even bother to actually make a phone call. There's this, uh, they don't really know how the telegram system worked. And there were tons of children that worked as telegram delivery boys too. 
Yeah, the Civil War really uh, was responsible for the telegraph companies and telegraph lines uh, sort of being strung all over the East Coast and then eventually heading west. And the telegraph companies, there were, I think, three major companies, and Western Union became the big one. Uh, Western Union was owned by Jay Gould. And Jay Gould, during the Civil War, had a guy on his payroll, and the guy would um, tell Gould ahead of time whether the North or the South won a particular battle. Now, if the North won the battle, Northern currency uh, and uh, was was uh, worth more. And this was sort of spec- not sort of speculation; it was speculation. If the South won a battle, then you'd sell North currency and buy Southern currency because nobody knew who was going to win the war. So that's um, Gould understood how knowledge, that kind of knowledge, immediate communication was important. So they um, there were pretty much a monopoly on the telegraph system. Remember, there was no radio. There was no television, no phones. Uh, there was mail. And there were telegrams. And telegrams were used for personal and business and government use. And in um, the 1880s, specifically 1883, there was a nationwide telegraph strike and all these big big historical events that you can read about in the history books you can also be pretty sure that they affected Hartford too and that's part of how I do my research I say oh this is a very important thing that happened in U.S. history did it happen in Hartford and sure enough it happened in Hartford Um, and so the telegraph workers also um organized. And they, in fact, they organized a national union, which made a lot of sense. And it wasn't just uh, boys. So boys would run telegrams throughout the city, but there were older, uh, not too old, but there were young men and there were young women who were operators too. And this was an unusual strike and an unusual union because they insisted that women should be paid uh, exactly as much as men. And this may have been the only union at the time that, that believed in equal pay for equal work um, because, in fact, being a telegraph operator was very, very stressful. Um, it's hard to believe that, but uh, they had to work very quickly. They had to be very nimble. And um, if they made mistakes, you know, they'd be out on the street. So, they went on strike uh, uh, for a uh, pay increase and recognition of their union. And it was quite a, I mean, again, here's where the public, even though they were inconvenienced, the public basically understood what they were going through because they were very, very close to uh, the people who worked in these telegraph office, offices. They were often their neighbors. Um, in fact, uh, kids... Uh, in the morning downtown Hartford, before they went to work, either at a, um, a grocery store or a, a hard goods store, dry goods store, or as a telegraph 
boy, they would play baseball. And this is, you know, in the 1800s, they'd be playing baseball at six o'clock in the morning and then they'd go into work. And that tradition continued during the strike as well. Um, it was a it was a communal pastime, and it was very much in line with uh, their attempt to work together to better all their lives, not as individuals, but but uh, as a community. You know, this talk about child labor. How does that finally end? What causes that shift where all of a sudden we we send children to school now? We don't expect them to be out on the streets. It ended in two ways. Um, we know that there was a social movement to end child labor. Lewis Hine helped that a lot because talk about pictures being worth a thousand words. His photographs were astonishing. Um, but also because of unions. Uh, unions the, believed that you should be able to bring home a paycheck and it should feed your family. Instead, what we found in Hartford and around, someone would work at a thread mill, say, and mom and dad and the kids worked as well. And they would get one paycheck and it would barely feed them, but there would be at least three members of the family working. That happened, I know for, uh, for a fact, in, in Willimantic at the Quidnick mill. Uh, and they were so poor, they had to um, uh, depend on on city handouts, as well as all of them working at the mills. So laws did it, but uh, workers uh, right in the factories and in the thread mills uh, did it as well. The last chapter I want to highlight is the one on Morgan Buckley. You write that in the late 19th century, Morgan Buckley was Connecticut's most powerful man. He served as Hartford City Councilman and Alderman, as mayor, as governor, and two terms as a U.S. senator. During most of that time, he was also president of the Aetna Insurance Company. Tell me about his epic feud with Daniel Bertzel, owner of the Hartford Telegram newspaper in the 1880s. Well, this is a, a story sort of like Colt. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, more interesting in, in many ways. Uh, Buckley was not a guy that you would want as an enemy. He was... I would say, the most powerful man in the state, running Aetna and having powerful political position at the same time um, was really a winning combination. And he was a well-dressed, well-turned-out Yankee, and he was tall. And his nemesis, as it turned out, and he was a Republican, his nemesis, as it turned out, was Daniel Birdsall. Daniel Birdsall, picture him next to Buckley. He was like five feet tall. He was a little rotund. Uh, he was an immigrant, um, maybe second-generation immigrant man, and he was totally different from Buckley in every way. But Birdsall wanted to be uh, a newspaper man. He had served as a state legislator from southern Connecticut, but... He had a political career, career in mind. And so when he bought the Hartford Telegram, there were already a number of newspapers in town, and they didn't like the competition, the Times and the Current and the other newspapers. They weren't particularly happy with Birdsall. 
And Birdsall was looking around, trying to figure out what would sell newspapers. Before the term yellow journalism was ever coined, uh, Birdsall was a yellow journalist. Now, remember, I spoke earlier of Pulitzer and Hearst. Hearst was really the first um, who was called a yellow journalist, and there's a whole story behind that. But Birdsall, maybe 10 years before that, was finding the scandal stories and he was taking on causes, which were often legitimate causes, and he was turning them into front page news. Now, he's not a hero because, in fact, he would sometimes get his facts wrong and sometimes he would make a mountain out of a molehill. But when it came to Buckley, he had a very, um, when it came to Buckley, he had a subject who was easily uh, embarrassed or annoyed by the things Buckley wrote. And uh, I think probably of all the fights that he had with Morgan Buckley, now, remember, Buckley was all those things that you said, but he was also the first commissioner of the National Baseball League. He's at Cooperstown, and the the big stone bridge was named after him some years after it was built. Um, so he was very, very popular in, in, in many ways. So criticism of Buckley, you, you had to be pretty sure of, of what you were doing. Buckley, as I said, was a man you didn't want as an enemy, and he was a high mucky-muck in the Republican Party, and by this time the Republican Party was the party of the 1%, and uh, this was during the Gilded Age, and he took an entire delegation to the Republican National Convention in Chicago in the late 1880s. Uh, Birdsall had a private detective follow Buckley, and he found out that Buckley and his entire delegation set up shop for the convention in a whorehouse, in the most classy house of prostitution in the entire city. Uh, and they would only go to the convention hall when they were absolutely needed for a vote. In fact, there were cabs, horse cabs, on standby 24 hours a day so that in case they had a rush to vote, they'd, they'd do that and then they'd come back and they'd drink brandy or whatever you do in houses of prostitution. Um, Birdsall's man came back. Birdsall printed all of this. Buckley never denied it. What he denied was that uh, any of this money came from Aetna well, of course, all the money came from Aetna because he was Aetna and the money came from him. But it was really embarrassing to Morgan Buckley, uh, especially since Birdsall's private detective had affidavits from the horse cab hackmen and from the madam of the uh, house of ill repute. Uh, and that was... Uh, now, in fact, the rich and famous always acted like that. They always broke the rules. The rules didn't apply to them. They drank on Sunday. They played cards on Sunday. 
Birdsall also um, uncovered all that, but it was right there under everybody's noses, and um, all he did was put it on the front page. So what happened to Birdsall? This is probably the most interesting thing, because if you hear about Birdsall at all, well, first of all, let me start. Morgan Buckley was known as the Crowbar Governor, and there was a book written by him, uh, the Crowbar representing the time where he that he was governor of the state, and there was a locked door up at the Capitol, and he had the sheriff break it open with a crowbar, and that's supposed to be some big deal. But in fact, Birdsall is really not mentioned in the book. What's really very uncomfortable for the students of Morgan Buckley history is that Birdsall was attacked one night and he was mugged by three younger men. He was getting on in age and he was tiny and he was, you know, not in good shape. And these three guys beat him up, um, whipped him, and one of them actually shot a gun at him, shot at him. Um, Birdsall escaped. And Birdsall escaped with, um, with his life. But the newspapers immediately started blaming Birdsall for the assault. Eventually, long story short, eventually, they were all found guilty of the assault on him. Their stories were totally fabricated. And there's a good chance that Buckley had financed the assault. And if not financed, we know for sure that he bailed these guys out and he paid their fines. Um, everybody wanted Birdsall's head, apparently, uh, all the people in power. And they went to great extremes in this case. Uh, Birdsall certainly was not, um, this was not the only thing that happened to Daniel Birdsall. Uh, Morgan Buckley felt he was libeled and he had the sheriff come into Birdsall's printing plant and confiscate all the printing presses and equipment. Buckley had all the printing presses and equipment stored in the basement of the Aetna Insurance Company. And this is not what happens for libel. I mean, you sue somebody for libel, and then if you win damages, you, 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 they have to pay the damages. But Buckley was a law unto himself, and he decided that libel charges weren't enough. He had the power of the law on his side, and so he actually uh, took Birdsall's printing press. Um, it, that was unprecedented. And uh, the newspapers of the time, who should have been concerned about the First Amendment, um, basically said, oh, yeah, I, I get what he was doing. You know, this is not out of the ordinary. Of course, if it had happened to them, they would have been howling. Birdsall, uh, plucky guy that he was, went to another printing place and uh, printed up a one-sheet newspaper that he distributed the next morning saying, hey, we're still here, we're still alive. And uh, Buckley's run in, in Connecticut lasted much longer than Birdsall's, but they're both buried at Cedar Hill Cemetery in Hartford. To close, in a nod to next week's Halloween, the Irish holiday of Samhain, can you tell me the ghost story about Birdsall and Buckley, both buried in Hartford yeah, Cedar Hill um, Cemetery? Both Birdsall and Buckley uh, were buried some 
40 years apart, actually, almost 40 years apart, because uh, Buckley lived to be a ripe old age and, and Birdsall died fairly young. But here's what I picture, uh, since Birdsall was a, an Irishman, and uh, I think Buckley may have claimed some Irish ancestry, too. Um, I picture every Halloween night, as you said, uh, the holiday, holiday of Samhain, Birdsall rising from the grave just to annoy and tease Morgan Buckley, uh, that even in death, even as a ghost, uh, he couldn't shake Buckley couldn't shake Birdsall's um, focus. And I, I, I am tickled by that thought. Thanks, Steve. Where can we find the book, Wicked Hartford? Wicked Hartford is um, just starting to show up in the bookstores like Barnes & Noble at University of Connecticut, downtown Hartford, but also online at Powell's Bookstore or Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can order from there. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Steve Thornton, author of Wicked Hartford, published by the History Press in 2017 and available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Today's music is by Hartford jazz artist Oris Jenkins from his album Soar and can be heard on iTunes, Spotify, and all streaming stores. For more great stories about Connecticut history, subscribe to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. Connecticut Explored is celebrating its 15th anniversary, and we've got a special offer for new subscribers. Subscribe before December 31st, 2017, and receive six issues for for the price of four. Use coupon code NUTMEG when you subscribe at ctexplore.org slash shop.